Hello and welcome to the Women Inspire podcast with me, Laura Adams. This is the podcast that inspires us by honouring remarkable women past and present. Women whose achievements have perhaps gone unrecognised, been forgotten or at times completely erased and whose stories are crying out to be told. It was 1816 and the worst summer in living memory. Over Lake Geneva, forked lightning tore up the sky and thunder cracked as five souls watched, sheltering inside their villa by the water's edge. As they did so, they dug down deep into fertile imaginations, conjuring up spirits in order to write down the scariest ghost stories. Young Mary Shelley, however, was stuck. Nothing would come. One restless night, a vision appeared, and in her waking dream, she saw a terrifying creature, born of another man's hands. The creature was Frankenstein's monster, and the resulting novel would become her masterpiece. Mary's own life was as dramatic as fiction, and from birth she was never destined to follow a conventional path. Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin was born on the evening of August 30th, 1797, in Somerstown, London. She was the daughter of unorthodox parents, the great radical thinker William Godwin and the brilliant and influential early feminist Mary Wollstonecraft. Only 11 days after Mary was born, her mother died from complications of childbirth, an event which would shape the rest of her life. Godwin apparently dropped to his knees and wept. He had lost his soulmate and now he alone would have to bring up not just his baby daughter, but his three-year-old stepdaughter Fanny as well. Not temperamentally suited to single fatherhood, he struggled and his work suffered. He wrote to his friend, poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, that when the wild cries of baby Mary fill the house, threatening to shatter the glass in the window, I succumb to unreasoning panic. He resolved to find another wife. After three years and several rejections, he married the widow Mary Jane Claremont, who had a son and a daughter of her own. Mary would later claim her new mother was a woman I shudder to think of, but little is actually known about her. As a stepmother myself, I am a supporter of a much maligned figure in history and literature, and I wonder how much Mary Jane's posthumous reputation results not just from Mary's hatred of her mother's usurper, but also the dislike of Godwin's friends who venerated Mary Wollstonecraft. Doubtless we shall never know. Certainly her new life was not easy, as Godwin was nearly bankrupt and Mary particularly was headstrong and rebellious. She had no interest in domesticity and no talent for womanly pursuits. Her father was the one person who mattered to Mary. She adored him and wanted only to please him. More than anything, she loved to read, and as they were homeschooled by Godwin, Mary threw herself into her studies. Another brother, William, was born in 1802, so with five children to feed, Godwin set himself up as a publisher of children's books, at which point the family moved to Skinner Street in Hoburn. Whilst Godwin had his successes, the family would always be beset with financial difficulties. As a child, Mary loved to be surrounded by her father's high-powered literary circle. She was intellectually precocious and became confident in adult conversation, used to holding her own on almost any subject. 
Surrounded by the unconventional and forward thinking, she held those who obeyed the rules in contempt, most particularly her stepmother. Though Mary was not particularly close to her half-sister Fanny, she became inseparable with her stepsister Jane at this time, who was a similar age. When Mary was about eight years old, the sisters became interested in the occult and would love to listen to the adult discussions of ghosts, unexplained spirits and other phenomena. Godwin himself denied the existence of spiritualism in any form, but this didn't stop Mary and Jane disappearing into the bedroom to engage in seances and games centred around the occult. Around this time, she was introduced to the writing of Mary Wollstonecraft and came to revere her absent and yet ever-present mother. Mary would take her books to the graveyard at St Pancras Church, where she would sit reading her mother's words by her grave, under a willow tree in peace and quiet. Sometimes she would take food to eat, and then stretch out over her mother's grave to sleep. Always knowing where he could find her, on occasion Godwin would come to retrieve Mary and take her home. In her early teenage years, Mary became frail and was sent by her father to enjoy the fresh country air near Dundee in Scotland, where she lived happily with friends and was inspired to write by the nature all around her. It is unclear when exactly the first meeting with the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley took place, but certainly by 1813 he had joined the group of enthusiastic followers of William Godwin, so their paths may have crossed that year on her return from Scotland. Shelley was a 20-year-old aristocrat, with an undistinguished academic record, having been a misfit at Eton College and then being expelled from Oxford for penning a pamphlet espousing atheism. He was living on a pitiful allowance from his father and the year before had eloped with the beautiful, young, but far from intellectual, Harriet Westbrook. She had recently given birth to a daughter and was pregnant again, but it would appear that Shelley had become bored by his wife and the two had separated, which had left Harriet devastated. Shelley kept Godwin from bankruptcy by lending him money, but was himself in frequent danger of debtor's prison. In late May 1814, Mary, who was by now 16 years old, was attractive, confident and bore a striking resemblance to her mother. It became worryingly apparent to the Godwins that Shelley was paying her a lot of attention. Mary would invite Shelley to the cemetery with her, where she revealed to him that when in torment she would kneel beside the tombstone and speak with her mother. The reverence he afforded Mary Wollstonecraft and his willingness to accompany Mary to the grave was probably an important factor in bringing them together. They were also both ardent followers of Godwin's philosophy. Shelley respected Mary as his equal and it would appear that it was a meeting of minds. It was at the graveside that on Sunday, June 26th, 1814, they declared their love for each other. Shelley was delighted that his feelings were reciprocated. He wrote poems to her which cannot have failed to delight her. Upon my heart your accents sweet of peace and pity fell like dew on flowers half dead. Thy lips did meet mine tremblingly, thy dark eyes threw their soft persuasion on my brain, charming away its dream of pain. It is said that Mary may have lost her virginity on her mother's grave. Harriet, understandably, was disturbed, but in response Shelley suggested that whilst he had grown attached to Mary, he still thought highly of Harriet, and the logical solution would be for them all to live together. 
This idea was understandably shocking to his wife, who put the blame squarely on Mary's shoulders. Mary's parents were persuaded to close their door to Shelley, so Mary now agreed to have no more to do with him. Ten days later, however, Shelley burst into the family home, handed a bottle of laudanum to Mary and suggested she drink it, at which point he drew out a pistol. Thankfully, a family friend managed to calm him down and he went away. A few days later, however, he attempted to overdose on laudanum himself, possibly because Mary had refused to meet him. The two were certainly corresponding and her sister Jane, who was by now known as Claire, was the go-between. By now, convinced that Shelley was not going to return to his wife, a hesitant Mary agreed to elope with him. On July the 27th, 1814, Mary and Claire announced they had headaches and went to bed. They packed and the two girls sneaked out of the house to meet Shelley in a chaise nearby and set off to Dover. Why they took Claire with them has been a mystery ever since, but possibly they believed it might ward off unpleasant gossip if Mary had a chaperone. If so, the strategy did not succeed. After 11 hours, they reached Dover and refreshed themselves with a swim before booking their passage to France. That night on the way over, a dramatic storm made Mary violently seasick. In Calais, Mary's stepmother caught up with them in an attempt to persuade them home, but Mary refused to see her. In Paris, they found lodgings. Mary and Shelley went sightseeing, walking the streets, sitting in coffee houses and watching the world go by. But after a while, the three of them decided they would walk from Paris to Switzerland, carrying their belongings on a donkey. Together, they enjoyed ambling through small towns and villages with no responsibilities perhaps experiencing the adventure of a modern-day backpacker. Mary was in love, free, happy and convinced that her mother would have fully approved. Of course, what the three were completely unaware of was the furore that had broken out at home. Both the Shelley family and the Godwins were livid and English society was horrified. All sorts of rumours abounded. The three intrepid travellers soon ran out of money, though, and were finally forced to return home. After six weeks away, they arrived back in Gravesend to face the music, though from their writings it doesn't appear to have bothered them unduly. Mary and Shelley moved into a London apartment and again, because she had nowhere else to go, Claire moved in with them. Godwin refused to see them and they were shunned by everyone they knew. But Mary, in love and by now pregnant, seemed unperturbed. Their days would be spent reading and studying. Extraordinarily, Mary could read up to ten books a week and would continue to do so for many years. In the evenings, Shelley would read aloud to her. Shelley was deeply in debt and in October he disappeared in the hope of eluding the bailiffs. He and Mary would rendezvous in different secret places every night, from her mother's grave one night to the steps of St Paul's Cathedral on another. In November, Harriet gave birth to Shelley's son, which Mary found difficult to deal with, and a few months later she herself gave birth prematurely to her daughter, who sadly soon died. The presence of Claire in their home was a daily irritant to the couple, but due to the scandal they had caused there were no other options. In spite of all their problems and Shelley's unreliable erratic behaviour, Mary's love remained undiminished. 
In fact, the life they led together was surprisingly conventional and detractors would have been surprised by their modest and clean living daily lives. Shelley's secret vice, as he called it, was sailing paper boats on ponds and lakes and this was a pastime he would indulge in until he died. The world around them was one of upheaval. It was 1815 but they seemed to barely notice events taking place around them. The escape of Napoleon from Elba, his subsequent defeat at the Battle of Waterloo and the rapid spread of the Industrial Revolution. In January 1816, Mary gave birth to a healthy boy and they named him William after her father. Godwin, however, still refused to speak to the couple. The two were restless to travel again and they learnt of an opportunity to meet the brilliant poet and infamous philanderer Lord Byron, perhaps the only person in Britain with a worse reputation than their own. Clare had become infatuated with Byron and on discovering he would be staying in Switzerland that summer, Clare suggested they all take a villa nearby. And so it was they found themselves by the shores of Lake Geneva, now inseparable companions with Lord Byron, who lived in the adjoining villa with a young physician friend, Dr Poldori. They had found an instant rapport with the poet, sharing a love of beauty and the same passion for equality and liberty. When the terrible weather permitted, they would sail on the lake in the evening and then return to Byron's villa, where they would stay talking into the early hours. Their days were spent reading, writing and walking. They took little notice of the British tourists who would spy on them and carry lurid tales of their supposed debauched activities back home. This group were A-list celebrities, the rock stars of their day. While stories of the wild orgies were fabricated, one pastime the group did indulge in was the holding of seances, and it was these that prompted the group to start telling ghost stories and working themselves up into a frenzy. On one occasion, an hysterical Shelley ran screaming in terror through the villa and had to be restrained. Byron proposed they hold a ghostwriting competition, and though enthusiastic, most of them soon abandoned the project. Mary was keen, but having initially found her mind was blank, a chance conversation between Byron and Shelley triggered the dream in which the monster was born. The hideous phantom would not leave her, and with a thrill of fear, she knew she had found the story she'd been seeking. Unable to sleep, she crept down to her study and scribbled down the opening words. It was a dreary night in November. Mary Shelley had started to breathe life into Frankenstein and his monster. At first she intended it should be a short story, but when she described it to Shelley he insisted that it should be a novel. It became known as Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus and Byron and Shelley both enthusiastically supported the project. Mary's goal was simple, she wanted to frighten her readers as badly as she had been frightened herself. She was only 19 years old. In her novel, she explores the dangers of scientific endeavour and advances in technology. She was fascinated with science and the idea that a human being may be brought back to life. Certainly at this time, the idea of a man being able to reanimate a corpse and that creation may not be divinely inspired would have been seen as heretical. On their return to England, Mary finished the novel. As it was first published anonymously, there was strong debate as to who had written it. 
Two years later, however, she claimed it as her own and she was established as a successful novelist. Who would have known that this classic gothic novel would still be terrifying readers 200 years later and would be adapted into numerous films, a genre not yet even dreamed of at the time, and plays including the extraordinary adaptation at the National Theatre recently. Frankenstein also established Mary as a trailblazer, a woman in whose footsteps later female novelists would follow. When the couple returned to England, they settled in Bath, but tragedy was to follow. Fanny, Mary's sister, who had been suffering severe depression and had long felt unwanted, was discovered alone in a rented room in Wales, having overdosed on laudanum. Her death was followed by malicious and unfounded gossip regarding her relationship with Shelley. Not long after this, Shelley's pregnant wife Harriet disappeared from the family home and was discovered having drowned herself in the Serpentine in Hyde Park. Shelley tried to gain custody of his two children but was unsuccessful due to his atheism and his radical views. He would never see his children again and Mary wrote that his grief was never assuaged. The two were now free to marry and the wedding took place in London on December 29th, 1816, at which point Godwin finally forgave the pair and was reconciled with his daughter. The couple lived for a time in Marlow, Buckinghamshire, but on giving birth to another daughter, Clara, Mary was suffering postnatal depression. So now the family moved to Italy and they settled in Pisa for a time, but tragedy was again to follow them. Little Clara contracted dysentery and within a few days she was dead. A few months later, their previously robust son William died from malaria. Not long after this, Mary suffered a dangerous miscarriage from which she almost died. It is hard to imagine the effect this terrible series of events must have had on Mary. In their grief, the couple struggled to communicate. Though a healthy son, Percy, was born during this period, which must have given some solace to Mary, she was left feeling alone and deeply depressed. Her own mother had died in childbirth with her, and surrounded by death, she must have now felt that she was cursed and that it was her fault. Shelley, meanwhile, was remote and unavailable. It would appear that he felt unable to support Mary at this time and had become infatuated with Jane, the wife of his friend Edward Williams. On the 1st of July 1822, Shelley, his friend Edward Williams and a young boat boy went out sailing on Shelley's new boat, the Don Juan. Due almost certainly to the inexperience of the three crew, the boat was lost in a storm and Mary would never see Shelley again. Nineteen days later, Shelley's bloated corpse was washed ashore. The bodies were quickly buried in accordance with Italian law, but at a later date the bodies were exhumed, and Shelley was cremated by friends at the water's edge. Mary did not attend. It is said that the one part of his body that didn't burn was his heart, and this was possibly due to calcification from an earlier tubercular infection. It was eventually given to Mary and apparently for the rest of her life she kept it wrapped in a piece of silk with pages of Shelley's poetry. At the age of only 24, Mary was a widow and a single mother. 
She eventually moved back to England and it is said that Mary may have had a relationship with Jane Williams at this time. Perhaps they were brought together in their shared grief. Mary worked hard to support herself and her son. She wrote several more novels, including the science fiction tale The Last Man, and she devoted herself to promoting her husband's poetry and preserving his place in literary history. Mary was devoted to her son Percy Florence for the rest of her life. He would go on to live a conventional life far removed from the drama of his two brilliant parents. In 1851, at the age of 53 and after a long illness, Mary died from a brain tumour. She was buried at St Peter's Church in Bournemouth along with the heart of her dead husband. Her parents' remains were exhumed from their respective burial places and were reinterred in the family tomb with her. The lives of Mary Wollstonecraft and her daughter Mary Shelley had many parallels and one can only feel sadness that they never knew each other. Two courageous, pioneering and brilliant women who each suffered terrible sadness and tragedy in their lives but who both broke the mould and gave so much to the world. Thank you for listening to the Women Inspire podcast. If you'd like to know more about Mary Shelley, please see the podcast page of our website, womeninspire.co.uk, where you can find out more about us. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends. We're brand new and it really helps to spread the word. February is LGBT plus history month. So join us for next week's podcast to hear the extraordinary story of Jo Carstairs, the fastest woman on the water. In the meantime, all the best until then.